We here at the GM Word of the Week like words. That may seem like an obvious statement given the title and nature of the show, but it bears repeating. We like words. Not just a little, either. A lot. After all, words are one of the main components of the games we play, and they're how we craft each of our episodes. And each of our episodes is usually about a specific word or collection of words you find in your games, and about which we have found something interesting to say. It's how things work around here, and it's served us pretty well so far. One of the things we enjoy about words is their etymology, that is, their history, their development from their earliest form to their modern equivalent in usage. We like to know where they came from and how they were used originally compared to how they are used today. For example, etymology itself is relatively unchanged from its earliest Greek form. It comes to us by way of Latin, where etymon meant origin of a word. And that came from the Greek etymon, which meant the literal meaning of a word according to its origin which came from an earlier Greek word etymos, meaning true. Ology, of course, just means a branch of knowledge, but you knew that. Part of the reason we enjoy etymology so much is because you often get to learn surprising things not just about the word you're looking at, but about other words as well. And in learning about these words, you sometimes pick up interesting tidbits about the people and places these words came from and passed through on their way to us today. You can track their change in usage, spelling, and definition, and see the influence each culture has had on the word over time. And knowing that can provide insight on why they've ended up in their present form, which helps you to better understand the nature of language and its facility for change. For example, take the case of the orange. There is, in the UK, a television program called QI. It's an example of that form of entertainment we just don't get over here in the States called the panel show. Basically, a number of comedians get together to participate in a more or less game show format in which they are asked questions and provide answers. Think of it like the celebrity version of your favorite game show, except the only things on offer are points and not charity prize money. Anyway, QI stands for quite interesting, and the conceit of the show is that the host which used to be Stephen Fry and is now Sandy Toxvig, will ask a question everyone already thinks they know the answer to. The four panelists will provide said answer and immediately lose 10 points if the answer they give is the usual boring answer, which it turns out is also usually incorrect. They get one point for providing the actual correct answer or working it out. Now, usually this is just a venue for some witty repartee between the comedians and the host, and an excuse to talk about some trivial or obscure information. You learn odd things, like the fact that the water in a blue whale's mouth weighs more than the whale, or that Michael J. Fox's middle name is Andrew. That sort of thing. But because we like words, we find ourselves paying attention particularly to facts related to them. So when a question about which orange came first, the fruit or the color, came up, we paid extra attention. It's fruit, by the way. But, as part of the discussion of the fact and the sort of bonus trivia that goes along with it, Mr. Fry said that the English word orange is actually a mispronunciation of its Arabic name, Narange. And so we all nodded our heads and added it to our store of randomly acquired knowledge, prepared to whip it out at a moment's notice and parade it in front of people, just as if we'd known it all along. 
The English word orange comes from Arabic naranj. Use it at parties, impress your date, entertain crowds. Except don't, because it's wrong. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Now, far be it from us to challenge the great QI and its impressive array of research elves. And we wouldn't, except for one very important thing. See, QI lives and dies on technicalities. Many of the facts and figures they purvey as the correct answer depend on either an extremely technical interpretation of the question or an equally technical understanding of the answer. How many moons does the Earth have? One, you might say. But QI will happily tell you that it technically has somewhere between three and five, or possibly eight, depending, technically, on how you define moon, who you ask, and where in our planetary orbit we happen to be. As we all know, being technically correct is the best kind of correct. And as a hint, it helps to define a moon as any naturally occurring near-Earth object. So we feel justified in saying that the orange fact isn't true, because technically, where we really get the English word orange is from French. And it works like this. Orange comes into Middle English as a word from Old French and Anglo-Norman orange, O-R-E-N-G-E. Period. End of sentence. We, the English speakers of the world, did not get orange from the original Arabic. We got it from Old French. Now the question is, where did Old French get it from? Well, from the Italians, of course. Their word for it was malarancio, or fruit of the orange tree, where mela means fruit. So the French called it humorange, hum meaning fruit. You'll have to forgive us if the sounds don't come across right. We speak none of these languages, not even a little. But you can sort of hear what is going on if you listen to native speakers carefully. Not that there are many native speakers of Old French around anymore. The other thing you can do is see the fruit traveling from east to west as you trace the origin of the word. Italy to France to England. Trace it back far enough, and you can eventually arrive at the source, India, and the Dravidian languages like Tamil and Malayalam, where it was called an Aranya. This passes through Persian and into Arabic, where it is rendered as something approaching Naranj. Again, we can only apologize, but you can see it is this that is picked up in Italian, and here is where the trouble starts. As we've shown, the word first crops up in India, so even if we are being very technical indeed with the origin of the word orange, QI seems to have picked a middle spot to claim as the correct answer, when in fact, if we're being that technical, they ought to have picked Tamil or Malayalam or even Teluga as the source, or else just gone for the actually correct answer, the French. But, and there's an even bigger but here than usual, there's a bit of trivia that follows all this origin stuff about the spelling. See, as you've no doubt noticed, all the pre-Italian sources have it spelled starting with an N sound, and not an O. Where did that pesky N go? Well, once again, Stephen Fry explains that the N was dropped by mistake because of the way English is spoken and written. To understand what they claim has happened, you have to understand a bit about articles. In English, Articles are words that combine with nouns to make noun phrases, and they help to specify what sort of noun you're dealing with. 
Is it a particular individual thing among a group of things? Is it just a group of things in general? Is it a very specific one-of-a-kind thing? And so on. To keep it simple, the two kinds of articles we are concerned with here are definite and indefinite articles. A definite article refers to one specific member of a group of things. For example, in the sentence, look at the picture, the word the refers to a specific picture out of all possible pictures. The is a definite article in that sentence. Probably I am pointing at the picture I want you to look at. It's very definite which one I mean. An indefinite article is one which could be used to indicate a variety of similar things. Look at a picture means you should seek out any picture you can find and apply your eyeballs to it. I don't really care which picture you look at, just go look at one and stop bugging me. The word A is an indefinite article. It's not specific beyond a class of things to which it is applied. According to QI, the trick with orange is this. When we use the indefinite article A, we have to be careful about the word that follows it. If the word that follows starts with a vowel, either in sound or in spelling depending on how you were taught to use it, you have to change the A to an. So you can't have a abacus, for example, you have to have an abacus. A and an are both indefinite articles. To be clear, there are other articles in both the definite and indefinite categories, but these are the ones we want to focus on. And just for the real grammarians out there, we know a lot depends on usage and other obscure rules, but give us a break, will you? There's only room for one pedant on this show, and we're it. So the Arabic narange was set as a narange when indicating one would like any orange at all from a pile of oranges, for instance. But because these indefinite articles had weird rules, you know, the whole a and thing, confusion could arise when the words were spoken instead of written down. So a narange sounded so close to an orange that things got messed up. And soon everyone was just opting for the shorter orange as the name of the fruit in question. And that was the explanation given for the loss of the N. But it's only half right, or possibly not right at all. It depends, technically, on your point of view. Weirdly, the trick works regardless where you think the original word came from, French or Arabic. In fact, it was probably the French and Italians who messed it up. Maybe especially the French, whose article UN would have filled the same purpose as our A and N. Unorange could easily have become un orange if you didn't see it written down. This whole explanation has to do with what is called rebracketing and happens when part of one word becomes attached to part of another word. Usually this happens when a word in one language is taken up by another and in order to parse the word, speakers do what you were taught to do in grade school and sound it out. So an orange becomes an orange if you are repeating it for the first time and no one corrects you. That's what it sounds like, so that's what you say. Similarly, an apron was once an napron, hamburger was once hamburger, and she turned me into a newt was once she turned me into an oot. Fortunately, we got better. There are dozens of words running around in the English language for which this holds true, both ancient and modern. Cybernetics, for example, is really supposed to be cybernetics. Meanwhile, Arabic has the definite article al, al, 
Al-Kitab, for instance, means the book. But it's hard to see how we got to an orange from effectively Al-Naranj. That's because we've deliberately pronounced it wrong, as opposed to all the unintentional mispronunciation we've done so far. Sure, written down it's always A-L, but depending on what letter follows it, it can be pronounced as A-N, an naranj. Because in Arabic, some words assimilate the L sound and double the sound of the first letter of the word. So some words, when spoken, sound like an something, which, if your language uses an article form that matches, can cause confusion and cause the word to be rebracketed as it transfers from one language to another, losing the initial N sound. It all depends on whether the letter following al is a sun or moon letter. And no, we're not going to explain that, it's a fun little linguistic corner to explore on your own. But speaking of the sun and the moon, we'd like to tell you a story about a man named Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi, and how he was the victim of a terrible case of rebracketing not once, but twice. And the fun part is, you'll have heard of him, but not recognized either he or his works. Al-Khwarizmi was born, probably, about 780 CE, in what is now Uzbekistan to a Persian family of which even less is known. Somewhere around 820 CE, he is appointed as the astronomer and head librarian at the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, which, after the Muslim conquest of Persia, was a prestigious center of science, learning, and trade. Part of the reason for the House of Wisdom's existence was to translate into Arabic scientific texts and literature from the Greek and Syriac languages. The House of Wisdom saw visitors and scholars from all over the world and, as its reputation grew, even translated texts from Sanskrit and Chinese. It swiftly became a repository of important texts and a source of contributions to the fields of philosophy, mathematics, medicine, astronomy, optics, and more. Al-Khwarizmi was no slouch either. His knowledge covered many fields, and today we would have referred to him as a polymath. Among the several books he wrote was one called On the Calculation with Hindu Numerals, which was written at about the same time as his appointment in 820. It wasn't much of a fancy read, but it did acquaint most of the rest of the known world with a Hindu-Arabic numeral system and was translated into Latin. You can thank it for the introduction of not only the numbers we use today, but the whole idea of a decimal numeral system in the first place, the basics of a decimal place, and the little positional indicators like the comma used to mark out groups of numbers over a thousand, among other things. Just a little book, really, hardly worth mentioning, especially after you consider the other books he wrote. In his geography, he corrected Ptolemy's work of the second century in mapping out the Mediterranean. It features over 2,000 coordinates given for cities and geographical features of the region, ordered by weather zone and longitude. Ptolemy had estimated the length of the Mediterranean Sea as covering about 63 degrees of longitude, instead of the more nearly correct 50 degrees, and he'd shown the Atlantic and Indian Oceans as landlocked instead of open bodies of water. Al-Khwarizmi fixed all that and added to it. When he'd finished that, Al-Khwarizmi wrote books about calculating dates and conversions of the Jewish calendar and how to use it to determine longitude of the sun and moon, books about using and constructing astrolabes, and he wrote the seminal work which kicked off a whole renaissance in Islamic astronomy where they were finally able to make their own observations and advancements instead of just translating and refiguring the works of others before them. But 
While impressive, these are not anything like the contribution made by his most well-known book, the compendious book on calculation by completion and balancing. The compendious book on calculation by completion and balancing, at its simplest, taught people how to do math better. People were pretty good at addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, sure. But if things got too much more complicated than that, they started running into trouble and had to refer to the geometry of the Greeks to work out answers to complex problems. Instead, using Al-Khwarizmi's examples and instructions and reducing equations to one of six simple forms, you could, by a careful process of balancing operations on one side of the equation with similar operations on the other side of the equation, arrive at an answer for more complex equations on your own without referring to a series of tables and charts and really very complex geometric proofs. And all of it was there, all explained in its most basic and simple form and gradually built up through the course of the book so that anyone could understand how to do it and apply this new kind of mathematics to everyday problems, including the very complex problems of Islamic inheritance which it was extremely important to get right. The book has a very long title, even in its original Arabic, but it contains two important words. Al-Muqabala, which meant to bring quantities of the same type to the same side of the equation, and the word Al-Jabr, which meant the process of removing negative units, roots, and squares from the equation by adding that same quantity to each side. And if this is now starting to sound very familiar to you, it should because thanks to rebracketing of the word algebra, when it was translated into Latin, we now have the process for dealing with polynomial equations known as algebra, a mathematical field of study all its own. But remember, we said Al-Khwarizmi had suffered rebracketing twice. We're reminded of the second case practically every time we go on the internet. Take YouTube, for example. Fire up your YouTube app on your phone, or just do the easy thing and go to YouTube's homepage at their website. There before your eyes appears a list of options on the left side, a search bar across the top, and then everything you're actually interested in in the middle, the videos YouTube thinks you might want to watch. Much the same thing happens when you log into Twitter. If you do nothing to it and don't change any of the default settings, Twitter will present you with a number of messages made up from those sent out by other users you follow, and a bunch of other things, people, and products and services it thinks you might be interested in. Amazon does the same thing. It tries to show you products you might want to buy so that you can buy them. In an ideal world, this all works beautifully to get you what you want when you want it. Except it doesn't. Even at its best, these systems for surfacing the things you want on the platforms you want them to appear only works about half the time if that much. For most people, it is far, far less effective. And frankly, for us, it sometimes doesn't work at all. In fact, sometimes, especially on YouTube, we break the algorithm that makes all these recommendations supposedly based on things we have interacted with before. And it just gives up. Supposedly, the YouTube algorithm is opaque. You can't see into it to see what's going on and how it works, and you have no idea what you can do to influence it if you happen to be the sort of person who posts videos. You roll some dice and cross some fingers and hope for the best because you can't influence the algorithm. You can only try to influence the people who might be willing to look at whatever it is you post. And sometimes when we watch YouTube, it just stops recommending videos to us. 
implying that it no longer has a clue what to recommend to us that might capture our interest. We hit refresh after telling it what we don't want to watch, and it just returns a blank page of nothing. Sometimes we cheer inside a little when we beat it. But really, it's easy enough to understand what has happened when you understand what an algorithm is and what it is meant to do. An algorithm is just a set of guidelines for performing a task, and really, we've been living with them for a lot longer than computers have been around. Want to make a cake? We have an algorithm for that called a recipe. Tying your shoe? There's a process to follow that yields a tied shoe. Changing a tire, dressing yourself, writing down words, all of these and more are sets of guidelines, rules, and procedures that, if followed properly, yield the desired results. In that sense, it's easy to understand why YouTube choked all over our video watching experience three times in the last two weeks. The YouTube algorithm failed to correctly follow its procedures for recommending videos to us. And the reason it failed? Because we are very picky about what we watch, and we aren't afraid to use YouTube's built-in tools for telling the algorithm how badly it's doing at this whole recommendation thing. So picky that by its own rules and procedures, the algorithm runs out of things it is allowed to recommend to us. Then we have to send off a little note to the tech team behind the curtain and tell them it's broke again. And that's the second thing that Al Khwarizmi is so well known for that you don't even recognize his name when you hear it. That book he wrote about Hindu-Arabic numbers on the calculation with Hindu numerals? It contained steps and procedures for how to do the arithmetic needed to work with those numbers which, if followed correctly, would unerringly lead to the correct solution. When it was translated into Latin, it turned out to have been written by a guy named Algorithmi, thanks to Latinization of his name. Rebracketed, just like Anne Narange. This has been GM Word of the Week, and boy, are we glad September is over. We've had enough fun for one month, and we hope all of you are doing well, and that you enjoyed today's episode. Honestly, we really like QI. It's just fun to watch, and you pick up some interesting trivia. It's available for streaming via Amazon if you want to check it out. We spotted some more reviews over on Podcast Addict, so belated thanks to Stone Dog, BJ Cox 3, and Nicholas for all the kind words over there. If you leave us a review somewhere we can find it, we'll give you a shout out on the show too. Our patrons on Patreon help support the show and bring it to you for free, with no ads for as little as one American dollar a pledge. In exchange, we provide transcripts, early episode releases, and a few other special goodies you might enjoy in exchange. Check it out by going to gmwordoftheweek.com and clicking the yellow banner inside. That way you don't have to hear about vacation panda nest services every time. That's a good thing. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, guaranteed never to have anything mathy named after him. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. When you are dissatisfied and would like to go back to youth, think of algebra.